You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Hello, my dear listeners. This is indeed the last episode for Season 3. So before I launch into it, just a reminder, please, if you listen to this podcast, to subscribe and rate us on whatever quality platform you use to listen to these episodes. This is going to sound to you like a strange practice, I realize, but I'm going to admit it anyway. My mother and I used to like, no, love, going to Costco to shop together. I know this is a strange and weird thing to do, and I don't know how in the world we bonded doing that, but we did. All I'm going to say here is that I enjoyed pushing the shopping cart around while she chose what she wanted, and that, as part of this routine, we were pretty susceptible to indulging in and eating some of their french fries on the way out. During one of those times, on a wintry day, we were just leaving the store when we passed a woman in a wheelchair. I was pushing the shopping cart away when my mother said, wait, just a minute. So I stopped as she turned around, walked back toward the woman, and leaned toward her. I didn't hear what she said, but the next thing I knew, my mother was zipping up this woman's coat. And with that, she returned to me, and we made our way back to the car. Did you just ask her if she wanted her coat zipped up, I asked? Yes, my mother said simply. Well, how did you know what she wanted, I wondered. I could feel that she was cold, my mother said, and I thought she probably wasn't able to zip up her own coat easily, so I thought I'd check and ask. I was completely astonished by her empathy and her simple gesture of care. Most of us, and I do include myself here, will claim to experience a sense of empathy for others, but I think we often confuse sympathy that is the recognition of someone else's feelings or suffering, with empathy, that is meaningfully connecting with and really feeling someone else's emotions and then responding with a sense of action. I'm including a link in my show notes to a very short Brene Brown video that helped me to understand the difference. It'll give you a pithy definition, but for today's episode, all I really need you to know is that appropriate action as a function of compassion for the person who has engaged your empathy is different from the passivity of sympathy by which one may profess to feel for someone's plight but offer a little more than a few words and sometimes even implicit judgment. First, allow me to observe that empathy is often invoked in literary circles as being a vital part of the field. The questions that often arise are as follows. Can empathy be taught? And more specifically, can it be taught through literature? There are, of course, arguments that propose it cannot, that we gravitate toward literature that either fuels an insular view of the world or that simply entertains us without changing how we think or feel about others. And I won't dispute that this is true for some people who pick up books to read. But if literature fails to move and to challenge us to change, or to be better, 
then it fails the litmus test of literature, or at least what some classical thinkers believed literature ought to do. It presupposes that literature ought to move and challenge us. So, for example, in the classical rhetorical tradition, the Roman statesman and orator Cicero argued that the ideal speaker was best poised to guide the state morally and would do so through rhetoric that should accomplish three things. First, delight. Second, teach. And third, move. And this corresponds with what literature should do, if we concur with the principles as espoused by, say, Aristotle, who explored the idea of delighting and instructing in his poetics, or in Horace's Ars Poetica, that it should instruct and delight us. I'll have links in my show notes for more information about this. If you look more specifically at moving, you would be right if you thought it means both an appeal to our emotions and arousing us to action. And the kinds of actions to which we should be roused are conditioned by the person who is advancing the argument. So, for example, St. Augustine thought men should be moved to holiness. You might see why I'm mulling over the word empathy, which is bandied about quite a lot these days, suggesting that being emotional or having feelings is a good thing. Now, while I don't have much time to delve into this too deeply, allow me to say that first, empathy is good when properly directed or applied to appropriate subjects, rather than when we get lost in or overcome by emotion. Also, Empathy is not the same thing as affect. I'll return to this as a subject of another episode in 2023. Nor should it be confused with sympathy. It is the book by Catherine Hernandez called Scarborough, which is also a district of Toronto on its east side where the novel is set, that really held my attention in view of the above. And as far as I'm concerned, it passes the literary litmus test and not simply because it evoked my own sense of compassion. I should add here that I saw the movie version first before reading the novel on a flight across the Atlantic. Its adaptation from the novel is quite good, and I recommend it. But it isn't just the function of the book itself, that is, its ability to move us according to the principles of Cicero. By the way, the novel also teaches and delights us. What I really love about this book is that it also significantly highlights being properly moved, morally moved, roused to action. That is, it shows what the difference is between real empathy and sympathy, as fundamentally expressed between two main characters represented in the novel. The first, the teacher figure, Ms. Hina Hassani, who works at the New Rouge Hill Public School Center in Scarborough, where different children of different backgrounds, cultural, racial, and otherwise, and her manager and supervisor of the Ontario Reads program, Jane Fulton. Their points of view are interspersed with that of other characters. This is one of the technical aspects of the book I love the most, the way that Hernandez successfully interpolates different points of view, so that we are challenged by a polyphony of voices with often radically different perspectives, including many of the young children who attend the program that Hina runs. That program is meant to be an extension of the school, and as Hina notes in her report to her supervisor, there are many parents who are English as a second language and live in a low-income area. 
One of the children who attend the program is Bing, or Bernard, a highly precocious young boy of Filipino descent who reflects on how his father, from whom he and his mother have since escaped, would, quote, put my hand under the hot water tap until it burned or had ordered me to hide in my room because I was so fat and ugly, end quote. Then there is Sylvie Baudouin, Bing's best friend, whose Mi'kmaq mother struggles to raise both her and her brother Johnny. Johnny is neurodivergent, so at one point Sylvie observes that, quote, it doesn't help that Johnny is in a phase where he eats anything off the floor. This week he really enjoyed eating markers. He barfed crimson red and sky blue all over his jacket. Twice. Mama was so tired, end quote. And then there is Laura Matowski, whom Hina discovers is suffering from neglect and other forms of abuse and has not learned to read. So Hina begins the process of teaching her. Quote, I went to the cabinet to retrieve the other letters. Then I placed them side by side on the windowsill. H-U-G. Can you see what this spells? What sound does H make? Ha, ha, ha. Laura held her hand in front of her mouth the way I had showed her to feel the exhale of air. I pointed to the U. Uh, uh, uh. I nodded, smiled, and pointed to the G. Guh, guh, guh. Good. Let's stick these sounds together. She obliged as my finger pointed to each letter. Ha, uh, guh. Hug. Can you see? You read a word all by yourself. It says hug. Is it okay if I give you a hug? She smiled the biggest smile I ever saw her make. Hina pays careful attention to all of the children, even in the smallest of details, by, for example, stocking Crispix cereal, because this is Sylvie's favorite. These perspectives invite us, as readers, to experience compassion, to understand the experiences of these children who are in attendance at the school. But when Hina makes appeals to Jane Fulton, the interaction makes clear that, while Jane feels sympathy... She doesn't experience empathy. Hina is moved to action. She helps Laura to read, as one example, and then creates activities that she sees the children need. Jane, however, is more interested, actually completely interested, in the center's operations over and above those who actually attend the school and need its services. She thus writes to Hina that she's happy that attendance is increasing at the new Rouge Hill Public School Center since, quote, these numbers are crucial since our funding depends on solid statistics. Having these forms truly helps our marketing and development officer get these dollars put toward each center, end quote. Of course, the funding is crucial. No one would dispute this. But there's a remarkable indifference in relation to the children who attend the center. She cautions Hina not to feed them or make food a main draw since, quote, healthy parenting and literacy, end quote, are at the core of the program. The difference is that Hina understands that literacy certainly can't function when the children are hungry. The conflict between these two characters mounts, and the narrative hinges on their responsiveness, or lack thereof, 
to the children and their well-being until Jane's complete lack of compassion is brought to a halt over a tragic crisis that erupts about midway through the book. But it is their competing perspectives about how to approach these children that suggest how adopting a perspective that is not your own, that takes into account someone's suffering without judgment, just to develop a sense of connection, is crucial to empathy. In other words, this book passes the literary litmus test in its depiction of empathy and its eliciting of compassion from at least this reader. The appropriate action that Hina takes, like that of my mother, is directed in productive ways. They are emotionally moved, so much so that they become involved in an action. It could be as simple as zipping up someone's jacket or teaching someone a letter from the alphabet but enough to show that they have opened themselves up, made themselves vulnerable to other perspectives, that they are not offering mere or token expressions of sympathy, but real and committed acts of compassion in response to the plight and suffering of others. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Today I'm going to recommend a book that falls somewhat outside of my comfort zone in that it's not a genre I read very often. It's a thriller. So I don't have much to offer by way of comparison. The book is Truth is a Flightless Bird by Abkar Hussein, and it's a fairly fast-paced narrative that drives relentlessly forward. It's set in Nairobi, prior to a visit rendered by the then-American President Barack Obama. The main character, Nice, her real name is Teresa, is a Canadian United Nations worker who's carrying drugs in her stomach and fleeing her Somali drug dealer and trying to cross the border into Nairobi. The youngest of seven siblings, all born in India before the family moved to Canada, she reaches out to a friend, an American pastor who leads a church in Nairobi. His name is Duncan, to whom she observes in ways that also resonate with her name and citizenship. For Canadians, as a general matter, let me tell you, we want to come across as nice. This is the load-bearing pillar of our national self-image. And sidebar, the reason I'm including this in Getting Lit with Linda isn't only because the main character is Canadian, but also because the author shares a Canadian citizenship. Duncan picks her up at the airport, but shortly thereafter, their car is run off the road. And then, as Duncan later reports, the last thing he remembers before he passes out were her, quote, bony shoulders shaking under the sodium lights. And when I awoke, she was gone. He makes an appeal to the detective in charge of the case. That I collected my friend from the airport, that we did have a terrific accident, and I'm extremely worried for her well-being. And thus the stage is set for the narrative that ensues. If thrillers are your genre, I recommend this book to you as my final book for 2022. Let me also add that I was as fascinated by the publishing company that produced this engaging novel, Iskanshi Press, which was founded in 2020 in order to produce and promote African books in the United States and to offer redress for the real lack of diversity in the publishing industry. Their own website will tell you that, quote, 
We wanted to tell our own stories without any erasure or need to conform to the literary tradition as postulated by the West. We believe that to tell our stories properly, we must tell them ourselves. End quote. I've added a link in my show notes so that you can learn more about the press and about the book under today's discussion in the takeaway component. And that's it, my dear listeners. Don't forget to look out for us in the new year at the end of February 2023 when we resume season four. Please feel free to write us in the meantime with other literary suggestions. Thank you so much for listening and all my best wishes for the new year. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.